Hello listeners, I'm Gabriel with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host Amjoal is joined by Brenna Banda, Associate Professor at Allard School of Law, UBC. She discusses a book, Colonial Lives of Property, and a research in the areas of property law and the relationship between property law and the histories of colonialism. Enjoy the episode. Hello, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again this week. We have a special guest with us today, Brenna Bander. Welcome, Brenna. Hello. Nice to see you. Brenna, why don't we start with you introducing yourself a little bit? Sure. I am a, um, I'm an academic and I teach and work and live on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh and Squamish First Nations. My research falls into the areas of property, property law, and the relationship between property law and histories of colonialism and racial formations. I've also done some work on uh, different feminist traditions of thought and action. But I'm wondering, uh, before we, I have your book in front of me right here, before we get into the the book a little bit, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to your own uh, trajectory of how you found yourself onto uh, the topic of your book, Colonial Lives of of Property. Sure. Well, um, I suppose it It started with an interest that I developed during my legal education concerning the issues of Indigenous dispossession in Canada and really also the um, place of race and racism and gender in that dispossession. And I, I developed these interests during my PhD research, which was really a critique of legal and political forms of recognition. So it was... My, my doctoral research was really focused on Section 35 of the Canadian Constitution that recognizes and affirms Indigenous, well, Aboriginal and treaty rights is the language that's used. And in my doctoral um, research, I trace the pitfalls of this kind of legal recognition through um, Hegel's theory of mutual recognition, and and it was a very it was a pretty theory heavy project, I guess you could say. Um, and after that, I went through a process of thinking about how certain kinds of political philosophy and theory, um, well, thinking about what they had to offer really concrete political problems like indigenous dispossession, and through. Um, Quite a fairly circuitous process, I guess you could say. I arrived at a um, quite a shift in my research that came to focus really squarely on property. Property is a form of dispossession. Property is the motor force of dispossession. Property is a form of um, political social power. And that's sort of what led me to focus so much on on property and the relationship between property and, and colonial dispossession. But in terms of the concrete um, cases I look at in the book, um, I, I ended up traveling to Palestine uh, as I was engaging in, in some more historical research on Canada and also colonial Ireland. 
And I was really struck by the similarities in how the law was um, functioning as a key modality of military occupation and land dispossession. And so the project that unfolded ended up being one where I, I look at how different legal techniques and different laws travel through different colonial jurisdictions um, and, uh, of course, acknowledging and working with all of the differences between these different contexts and historical moments, um, still being able to pull out an, a, lo- a number of similarities in how these legal techniques were functioning. And, you know, we see, um, you know, with the various histories of uh, colonialism, um, these documents from the church, like the Doctrine of Discovery, uh, Terra Nullius, um, others that kind of uh, work in tandem along with the law. And um, I'm wondering, you know, you tie in the book, the relationship between juridical practices and domination as they kind of move through property. As you rightly point out, these um, terms like Torrens uh, title that, you know, comes out of, I guess, Australia is where it gets tried out and brought to Canada and other contexts. And in the context of uh, Palestine, where you had uh, the Ottoman Empire that had their own forms of property, that was, I suppose, in some way legible to European colonialism. And so it was superimposed on top of something that was there. And I'm wondering if you can speak to, um, you know, what your research kind of uncovered in terms of how the law property and colonialism kind of function together? Well, I think one of the key arguments in the book and one of the key insights, if I could say that, um, is how the logics underlying modern forms of property and modern property laws share a similar structure or or conceptual basis with contemporary uh, forms of race thinking. And so what I trace in the book is how in each of these different contexts, the property law justifications for land dispossession emerge with certain forms of racial thinking. So to give you an example, there's a chapter in the book on the idea and ideology of improvement. And we can see as far back as what the British did in Ireland and through the work of someone like William Petty, that kind of uh, thinking where the theory of how to value land emerges in conjunction with a um, not just a theory of the value of labor value, but but a theory of value that's about the Irish peasantry, you know, who are being dispossessed. And so, you know, the fact that racial, modern concepts of race and racial difference emerge in conjunction with modern conceptions of property is one of the main arguments that I trace through these different uh, chapters in the book. And I guess there's also, you know, the more contemporary forms where, you know, people find their property title and uh, it says that, that, you know, they're not allowed to sell to Chinese Canadians Mm. or South Asian Canadians or non-white, non-European peoples, uh, which, you know, are not that far gone from history here in the way that it still plays out. 
Um, there's uh, you begin with a, a chapter that talks about property as use, sort of uh, tying, I guess, into this sort of Lockean notion: person working the land and making it better, or whatever. And it gets brought into planning in a different way around you know certain types of property upkeep and others that are used in highly politicized ways. I'm wondering if you can speak to that notion of property as use. Yeah, well, I think this is also again a way of framing um, some really crucial political problems that we are confronting. Like if you think about the housing crisis, uh, we can conceive of the housing crisis in terms of a contestation over what kinds of use are valued by current political orders and also by the law. So, you know, if we were to prioritize shelter adequate, safe housing for everybody, then it would require us to have, as a society, conception of use uh, that's related to the question of value. I think I keep coming back to the question of value that supersedes concept of use and value that prioritizes profit and individual private property ownership, right? So, you know, and then looking at the history of what kinds of use have been valued and prioritized allows us to also kind of denaturalize the way that property works in our society or in our world or, you know, if we're thinking about a particular urban context or um, municipal context. And so, yeah, I think that thinking about what kinds of use of property, whether it's residential housing or whether it's other sites, you know, whether it's if we're looking at forests, again, you know, if we think about extractivism, then what kinds of use uh, are we um, privileging? And, you know, it's a useful way, pardon the pun, to, to frame the kinds of political contestations that are happening all over the place. And certainly in, in the context of, of BC, where, you know, Treaty 8 and Northeastern BC or the Douglas Treaties, like large parts of it um, never came in under treaty. And so is, you know, very much when you look at the Sanok development happening downtown, city of Vancouver doesn't really have a say in its zoning or planning. It's really um, one of the most interesting kind of sites in, in, in many ways in terms of uh, how uh, that's playing out with neighboring governments and how to understand that in a sense. In your, your book, you talk a little bit about this concept of of articulation. I think Stuart Hall reading Althusser somewhere in that zone, but wondering if you can speak a little bit to that term. Yeah, I, I sort of borrow that, the, the way in which Stuart Hall uses the concept of articulation to think about the relationship between race and class. And I kind of borrow that concept to think about the relationship between race and property. And essentially, some of the aspects of Stuart Hall's thinking around articulation that I found really generative have to do with the idea that any given articulation, so in his case, he's thinking about articulations of race and class, are neither um, inevitable um, but are also not completely contingent. You know, and, and it's that formulation that I think really allows us to understand how particular forms of domination are structural, but in recognizing that they are not inevitable, it allows some space for think 
for thinking about, well, what are the weaknesses in this, um, in this articulation? What are the points of resistance? Where, where, are, where are the points where we can push for some kind of other uh, outcome? you know, or, or, or another direction. So, uh, that's how I drew on that concept of articulation in, in the book. Uh, you speak a, a little bit as well about the, um, Chilcotin case, uh, in, in the book. And uh, I, of course, I grew up in Williams Lake in the, in the, in the region. And there's a very, very high profile case, um, several years ago. And I, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to the, the implications of it and, and why it's such an important case to, to think through in terms of how these questions go forward into the, into the future. Yeah. Well, the way I, I mean, I think it's had, major ramifications in a lot of different ways. The way that I take it up in the book is to use that judgment as a way of understanding how, I mean, going back to the limits of recognition point, the limits of legal recognition, that even in a case that makes a legal advance in recognizing Indigenous or Chilcotin forms of use, um, so that the court accepts that Indigenous forms of use and ownership will not necessarily look like uh, or will not have the hallmarks of an Anglo-European conception of ownership and use, right? So they, they make that advance. But in even in making that advance, um, they, and, and going past what was called the postage stamp theory of uh, you know, indigenous um, of or Aboriginal title, um, they still re you know reiterate the legitimacy of crown colonial sovereignty. So that's uh, you know the first thing to note. They all, as I argue in the book, they also make this advance about Chilcotin forms of use along the lines of the of the anthropological category of the semi-nomad. So they recognize the Chilcotin as a semi-nomadic people, you know, and on that basis find that, you know, they they used the land in this way. And so that's the basis upon which they can expand this idea of Aboriginal title. Um, so the argument I pursue in the book is that there's still this uh, fundamental problem with a kind of racial thinking or categorization that's embedded within the judgment. So I think it's, you know, ultimately, this is the particular way in which the court captures that legal claim to which which is putting forward um, in an indigenous conception of ownership and use. You mentioned uh, Hernando de Soto, the neoliberal economist, you know, referencing property titling as a part of a development agenda. And of course, there's, you know, other um, thinkers like, say, Tom Flanagan at the University of Calgary, Stephen Harper's mentor, who, you know, um, actively advocating for a kind of system of individual rights as a way of really undermining collective rights, indigenous rights, in terms of uh, a kind of uh, neoliberal right-wing approach um, to these questions. And I'm, I'm wondering how this sort of plays out in the in the contemporary sense, because there is a kind of reactionary politics against collective rights playing out through property titling or attempts at individualizing these rights that have historically been collective in, in nature. Yeah, well, I think the the. Th the rest of that kind of thinking is is the idea that individual private property ownership and and 
commodified or commoditized conceptions of land are civilizational progress and represent a kind of civilizational improvement uh, that everyone should be brought into. I mean, that is definitely the the logic behind De Soto's thinking and, and others. And, you know, as many other scholars have have examined and written about, the attempts to turn informally held land in impoverished communities in a variety of places um, into individually titled parcels of land so that those uh, people could become private property owners and use their homes as collateral to, you know, enter the credit debt economy, etc., don't actually lead to better outcomes for people at all. Um, and so, the, and that's, you know, I think a, a different point from the one you mentioned, which is that this is also clearly a drive to undermine um, collectivized uh, or, or collective forms of ownership. So I think we really need to be thinking about other models of how we hold and relate to land. And, you know, that I think that is happening in some places. Obviously, there are huge land back movements all over Turtle Island. Uh, there are movements to expropriate residential rental housing in major cities in Europe uh, from corporate landlords and to, um, you know, bring more of that kind of uh, property back into the hands of communities. So I, I think there are and there have always been, um, you know, different kinds of resistance to the logic of individual private property ownership. Uh, in the case of Palestinian context, for example, it is layered and complicated in terms of where the legal uh, overlay over West Bank and Gaza is different than East Jerusalem or say the Bedouin in the Negev or a series of unrecognized villages within um, the Israeli state currently and how uh, uh, the state can dispossess in different ways, even in the same geographical area. And I'm wondering, in terms of your time spent uh, there, how you read the forms of dispossession. Yeah, I think there's some really brilliant work being done by Palestinian scholars looking at the different land and military regimes in what has become a very fractured Palestine. And some of the really interesting work that is being done um, actually shows how the land and military regimes that have been used to dispossess Palestinians of their land are part of a unified project, right? So I think, you know, especially in the post-Oslo period, this um, the, the fragmentation of Palestinian territory is is of course very severe. But what I think is interesting in the resistance to that is a drawing out of the of the commonalities in the legal regime that's been used in all of these different sites. You know, despite their 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 profound differences in terms of the on-the-ground realities. Um, in the book, I end up looking at the situation of the Bedouin in the Nakab, in part because having spent quite a bit of time in the West Bank, I felt that the the situation of the Bedouin in the Nakab most clearly, uh, well, there were many similarities with the other sites that I was exploring in the book. Um, and that's why I ended up focusing on that for the purposes of the book. But um, 
Yeah. Now I wanted to speak with you. Uh, you've you've written also in 2020 uh, a volume, uh, Revolutionary Feminisms, with some uh, colleagues and collaborators. Wondering if you can speak about that that project. Yeah, that was an entirely different project from the Colonial Lives of Property book. My colleague and friend and collaborator Rafif Siada and I um, interviewed a number of feminists over. I think the book. I think we did it over a period of about six years or maybe, no, maybe seven years. And we, the aim of that book was really to bring certain kinds of feminist thought and action in a way to not necessarily just a younger audience, but, you know, an audience of people who were um, just kind of coming into um, anti-racist, anti-capitalist forms of feminist thinking and I suppose there was a little bit of a feeling that some of this work and some of this thinking was was being was obscured somehow. And so we really wanted to to just collect this work in in one volume and put it out there. We thought an interview format would be an engaging way of bringing a lot of this thinking and histories of activism to light, and would be an accessible way uh, of bringing a lot of this work out. And um, it was also. You know, alongside the fact that Rafif and I were doing this project together, I think the whole interview format really lent itself to what felt like a collaboration. So the, you know, the, the feminist method was really embedded in the whole project. And uh, um, can you speak a little bit to some of the people that you interviewed in the book? Yeah, sure. So we interviewed, let's see, we started off with... Um, Avtar Bra and Gail Lewis and Vron Ware, uh, who are located in Britain, and who each brought very different kinds of work and their own histories of activism to the table. And then we also interviewed uh, Sylvia Federici, Gary Kinsman, Himani Banerjee, and Leanne uh, Betta Samosake Simpson. And, and then finally, we interviewed, well, Sylvia Federici's also based in the US, uh, but then we, we interviewed um, Angela Davis, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, and Avery Gordon. And with those three uh, scholar or militant scholars, to use Ruthie's term, having engaged a lot with the prison industrial complex and politics of abolition and and things like that. So, and uh, uh, I know that you earlier also worked on a project on the work of Catherine uh, Malibu. How did you yeah. fall into that project? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, so I think I mentioned that my doctoral research, um, where you know, was kind of staging an engagement with Hegel's theory of recognition. And one of the most innovative, I think, contemporary philosophers uh, who's worked on Hegel um, is Catherine Malibu. And so I ended up um, becoming very interested in her work. And along with my uh, friend and conspirator, uh, John Goldberg Hiller, ended up sort of deciding that it would be really amazing to bring a group of interdisciplinary scholars who, for the most part, I think with the exception of one person, is not a philosopher, but engaged in a variety of different kinds of critical theory together to think about um, uh, Catherine's work and in particular her concept of plasticity and also her work on uh, materialism. And we did that and it was a very interesting workshop because there were a lot of 
very generous but critical engagements with her work. And we we ended up collecting the papers and going through a very long, intensive editorial process, as usually these kinds of edited volumes demand. And in our introduction, really worked through, I think, the, well, that question that I mentioned earlier, you know, how does one engage in, uh, how does one engage philosophical discourse and a certain kind of philosophically informed critical theory in relationship to really present, you know, material political problems. And so for me, it was really a, an invaluable kind of ex, ex, thinking through that question. And uh, I think that's why the Colonial Lives of Property book ends up being uh, really a kind of, you know, sort of engagement with a, with a kind of more historical materialist tradition. Yeah, uh, I, I took a class with Catherine Malibu actually a couple of times. This is around the time that your book came out, probably about 2013, 14, just prior. And uh, I remember the first 15 minutes I sat in class with her, she brought up Foucault's definition of biopolitics and Derrida's uh, definition of it and uh, Gumbin's. And then within 15 minutes, she basically said, they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> then she went into her own definition. It was like quite like, whoa, that's like, it was, it was fantastic. She's, she's brilliant. She she's, really, really is. Yeah, she's amazing. And it was just a really wonderful workshop as well, just to have that intensive engagement over the course of a few days where, you know, she was, she was so present for each of the papers that were delivered. And as I said, many of them were very critical of her work. And it was, uh, I think, a very generative uh, and generous gathering. So uh, for me, those are, that's like academia at its best, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she came to speak at uh, UBC a few years back and there was a reading group that was set up at a small artist-run center and we did a whole engagement with her when she uh, arrived. People have been reading her work for a few months and yeah, it's really, uh, I find a lot in her work and particularly the the plasticity uh, part. Uh, I'm wondering if you can speak a little bit to what are you working on now, Brenna? Oh, well, um, I'm continuing with some of my work on property and I'm I've actually been working with some other people on the specific doctrine of preemption which I cover very briefly in the book but hadn't really dug into in terms of the history of this doctrine and where did it come from and what does it mean and so the doctrine of preemption is basically um, the doctrine which allows settlers to come to British Columbia and and literally just take indigenous land. So it's really what enables the creation of a market in private property. And so I'm, you know, exploring the origins of that doctrine and uh, where it came from and how it was used. And some of the things that we're discovering through this research are really fascinating because we see how even on the terms of colonial law, it required a lot of extra legal violence to enact and execute preemption. And so, you know, that may not be a huge surprise to anybody, <laughs> but I suppose um, from, uh, from, a, from the point of view of looking at how colonial law operates, I think it's often assumed that the, you know, the law itself was the source of violence, you know, like the idea of lawfare, for instance. 
Um, but I think what we're seeing it through this research is that it's not only that um, the law itself was, you know, the colonial law of preemption itself was based in a kind of racist colonial logic, but even to bring that into being required extra legal violence. So, uh, for example, um, there's a lot of um, documentary evidence of land that was clearly settled and cultivated and, uh, you know, uh, by Indigenous communities, which was not supposed to be preempted. So according to the law, preemptors, individual settlers were not allowed to preempt that land. And we see lots of evidence of settlers just coming in and destroying people's homes, um, destroying, you know, evidence of cultivation, like we see in other contexts in the present moment, sort of, and kind of making the land into that Lockean fantasy of a wasteland and thereby making it open for preemption. So we're, we're kind of tracing these sorts of violent histories, I guess, of law and property. That's a lot to go on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, is there anything you'd like to add, Brenna? Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm quite interested in making the links between, you know, the power of property to dispossess when it in in relationship to colonial contexts like British Columbia, but thinking about the power of property to dispossess in other contexts as well. Sort of, we talked about housing before. Um, I'm I'm really interested in how one might draw the connections uh, between these different sites because I think that they are most definitely connected to one another or or kind of working off the same logics. So, yeah. Brenna, thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Below the Radar is a knowledge democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Dr. Brenna Banda. Check out the show notes below to find resources related to the episode discussion. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at SFU underscore VOCE to stay up to date on our newest podcast releases. Tune in next week for a new episode of Below the Radar.